week, it was brought to my attention uh, that I had been misspelling the Maisie's last name for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got a text from Mike, and he asked me, you know, because we had sent him a letter. We had sent him a letter, and on the letter, their last name was spelled wrong, and their address was wrong. My mistake had caused my wife to write it down incorrectly. And I get a text from Mike, and he, he asked me, he's like, who are you trying to reach? <laughs> Do you even know me? <laughs> and then on the, on the letter, there's even a stamp that said, hi, happy we found you. Please let the sender know they screwed up. <laughs> so the misspelling of a name can bring about all sorts of confusion, misunderstanding, and misapplication. But what happens when we misunderstand God? If we misunderstand God, we will misunderstand his purposes in the world. And as we come to our text this morning, we have to wrestle with the problem. We must begin to rightly think about who God is and what his purposes are in salvation. The question is, what danger do we face if we misunderstand God's purposes in the salvation of believers and unbelievers? With this in mind, please turn with me to Romans 11, verses 11 through 24. It'll be on the screens. If you have a Bible, please open it. So Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 24. This is the word of God. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue 
in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is the word of God. Will you pray with me at the hearing of his word? Lord God, we come to you in Christ's name, and we ask that you would just illuminate to us your word, teach us, bring us humility, help us to understand your purposes in salvation, and how to respond appropriately. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before we move on, I think some review is in order. We're going to briefly consider what God has said about himself from these last few chapters of Romans. See, in Romans 9, we saw that God is sovereign in bringing about the salvation of those whom he chooses, that he has purposes in saving some and passing over others. And Romans 10 tells us that Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God and that God's chosen means of bringing about the message of salvation to the world is through the proclamation of his word. And in all of this, we see that our God is in complete control. Friends, the God of the Bible is intimately close and immensely powerful. And he accomplishes all of his purposes. However, something feels amiss at this point of Roman, in Romans. What do we do with the Jews? Well, Paul is aware that we st- there's still an unanswered question. In chapter 9, we see that Paul's heart breaks for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's aware that the Jews have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as prophesied in Isaiah. And in chapter 10, Paul recognized that Israel has heard the gospel, but they still respond in unbelief. While at the same time, last week, we heard that Paul held himself up as a witness of the fact that God has kept for himself a remnant of the Jews whom he has chosen by grace. But what about the larger Jewish ethnic, ethnic Jewish population? Why is it that so many of them are still separated from God? You see, there was a, a real danger on the part of the Gentile believers in Rome to think that they were something special. That God was throwing away the Jews and starting fresh with the Gentiles. With this in mind, Paul opens with a, a question. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Well, Paul's answer is emphatic. No! By no means, absolutely not, no way, may it never be. Paul wants us to know that there is no chance that Israel's stumbling means their ultimate fall. God's purposes does not include the abandonment of the Jews. 
In fact, God's purposes in the stumbling of the Jews was that salvation might come to the Gentiles. Even for us today, we are recipients of salvation because God has designed the stumbling of the Jews to lead to our salvation. You know, us Gentiles who knew nothing of Yahweh and his purposes in the world, nothing of his covenant promises. And the text makes this plain. We read that through there, the Jews, trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And, you know, in the book of Acts, we see this this movement, this crescendo, where the the gospel comes to the, the Jewish community, but as we move through Acts, it moves into the Gentile world. And one of the reasons that it keeps moving out is because of Jewish persecution against the the Christians in Jerusalem. And Acts ends with Paul in Rome, the epitome of the Gentile world. And this all fits into what Jesus himself said at the beginning of Acts, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. Through the Jews' rejection of the Messiah and their persecution of the church, the message of salvation went into the world. But there is still more to God's saving purposes. We need to ask ourselves, why has God allowed this to happen? God used the Jews' sin to bring about our salvation, but what is God going to do with them? The salvation of the Gentiles has in it the purpose of making the Jews jealous. You know, we heard something similar just a few weeks ago. In in Romans 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32.21, I will make you jealous for those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. This was a pronouncement of judgment on the Jews. But in this passage, we read something different. We are to understand that God's purposes in provoking the Jews to jealousy is so that some may look upon the blessed relationship the Gentiles now have with Yahweh and long for a relationship with him again. What was once a judgment is now a gracious provoking. In his commentary on this passage, John Calvin said, So it may be now, he says, that the Jews, seeing the Gentiles introduced into their place, will be touched with grief for their divorce and seek reconciliation. The Lord's blessing of the Jews became a greater blessing to the Gentiles. But God's greater blessing on the Gentiles will come again to greatly bless the Jews. You know, Paul hoped for this as he worked to bring the gospel to uh, the Gentiles. We see that God used Paul's ministry in the salvation of the Gentiles to further provoke the Jews to jealousy. In, in verse 13, in saying that he magnifies his ministry, Paul means that he works with all of his strength as he labors with the Gentiles. 
And in working, he hopes to bring some of his own people to Christ. And in verse 14 and 15, Paul works in this way because he knows that God's saving purposes still include the salvation of the Jews. And in verse 15, the final salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles is in mind. Their rejection meant the salvation of the world. Their acceptance will mean life from the dead. God's saving purposes will come to completion for both Jew and Gentile. Brothers and sisters, these opening verses tell us something about God. We must not understand, we must not misunderstand. (laughs) God is sovereign to save whom he wills through whatever means he chooses. The trespass of the Jews led to the salvation of the Gentiles, yet God still has purposes for the Jews and will bring about their salvation. If we misunderstand, we might think that God has simply started over. We are in danger of think, if we think that God's purposes in salvation are all about us. But what are we in danger of? Renovation Church, if we misunderstand God and his purposes in salvation, we will respond inappropriately. God's saving purposes are not complete. He is still at work in this world. Since God is still at work in this world, what should our response be? Now, to understand what God is doing we need to look at what he's already done. So we're going back. We're going far back. Look at verse 16 with me. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. We must take note that God did not start with the Gentiles, he started with the Jews. In this verse, the dough and root refer to the same thing. They refer to the promises first made to Abraham. And holy refers to God's act in setting people apart for his own use. The Lord consecrated Abraham and his offspring to be God's covenant people, that Yahweh would be their God, and they would be a people for his own possession. Understanding this gives us perspective on what God has done and is doing in the world. Do not misunderstand. God set apart the Jewish people and Abraham so that by way of his covenant faithfulness, salvation might come to the, tri- tri- to the, the world, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Through God's covenant with Abraham, a promise was made for offspring. Brothers and sisters, the offspring of Abraham is Christ. In Galatians 3, we read that the promises were first made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, 
and to your offspring, who is Christ. The Lord brought salvation to both Jew and Gentile as the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. We must not misunderstand. What God is doing is not new, but is very old. God is sovereign in salvation and faithful to his covenant promises to Abraham. And in light of his covenant promises, he has brought us into the olive tree. So what should our response be? Who are we in light of God's redemptive work? Please read verses 17 and 18 with me. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. In these verses, God warns us not to be arrogant toward believing and unbelieving Jews. We are reminded that we have been grafted into a tree that is not our own. The Lord grafted us into a tree that grew out of his promises to Abraham. We must not go about arrogantly boasting of our relationship with the Lord if we have no regard for the root. Remembering that our salvation is, the con- is in the context of the Lord's covenant with Abraham should cause us to be humble. John Piper said that Paul's rejection of Gentile boasting over the Jews with the kind of derision and persecution that may go with it, he reminded Gentiles that to this very day, Gentile salvation depends on God's faithfulness to his covenant to the Jewish forefather Abraham. We must be humble toward those with whom we share the tree. Of course, this includes more than just Jewish Christians. How arrogantly have some Christians been toward other Christians? You know, as we're Baptists here. This is a Baptist church. But some Baptists are notorious for enjoying their corner of the Christian world and they separate themselves from other believers. Believers who might baptize their children or govern their churches differently. Renovation Church, we ought to walk humbly and in unity with Christians of other denominations. Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, Pentecostal, any church that stands on the gospel, we have more in common with these people than we do with anybody else. Nobody else. (laughs) And what about Christians of different cultural identities. The church in America has fallen into wicked arrogance that elevates its cultural identity over the identity of others. Now, don't get me wrong. I love America. It's great. This affords us the opportunity to stand here this morning freely without threat of persecution. 
But so many in the church today act as though they are Americans first and Christians second. This unfortunate attitude has made its way into, some how, into how some churches uh, think about different cultures. Churches that reflect different cultures. Brothers and sisters, I'm so glad that we live in a, in a city where Christ Church has so many cultural manifestations. We even have the opportunity to participate with some of them, as we did with Inglésia Missionale just a few months ago, as, as the Morrises continually get to, which is great. As Christians first, we ought to love believers of differing cultures and be humble about our own culture. We must understand those who have been grafted into the olive tree all share in the same nourishing root. We, with all people who have turned to Christ in faith, are recipients of God's covenant blessing. Let us with humility seek unity with all who have been saved by the Lord. Salvation is no cause for arrogance, but rather calls for continued humility. But not only humility. Salvation calls for continued faith and reverence. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. In verse 19, we have one of Paul's imagined objectors. We've had them sprinkled throughout the book of Romans. So this objector, he's not a person coming to this matter with humility, but with pride. We can almost read the statement, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul's response is somewhat snarky. One commentator said that it is almost like Paul is saying, well, 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 I guess you think you're special. Here's the deal. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. As we are warned not to treat others who have fallen in unbelief with pride and arrogance, God supplies to us attitudes that we ought to pursue. In verse 20, it says that you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. Faith and fear are the proper responses toward God as we consider his judgment on those who fall in unbelief. Faith is believing God. And our response of faith reminds us of the fact that we are completely reliant upon him for all the blessings of salvation. God is the one who grafted us into the tree. 
He did it. In the face of unbelief, we stand fast through faith. The world rails against God and continues in rebellious unbelief. But we hold to his word as truth and to Christ as our only hope. Faith guards us against unbelief. But why fear? What do we fear? Friends, we fear God because of his majesty. God is our father, but he is due all honor and respect as our king and our Lord. In the presence of our supreme king's majesty, our pride is destroyed. Brothers and sisters, do you understand the wickedness of pride? Pride says it, it is all about me. And that's in spite of who God is. It's all about me. It's not about God, it's about me. It's about my purposes, it's about what I want. This is a problem today. And we, we don't even need to look very far for examples. Many today approach church with pride. Christians in America today go around looking for churches that will satisfy all of their desires. And if they don't, well, then we'll just leave. The reality is, the purpose of the church is to glorify God in the world. We must put away our pride when we think about church and look for a church or remain in a church that holds the Lord up, is obedient to his commandments, and gives him the glory due his name. Others treat their marriage with pride. If my marriage no longer satisfies me, then I will just leave and find myself another spouse. Friends, marriage is not about our self-fulfillment. It's about displaying the gospel in the midst of blessing and trial. If we misunderstand, we are in danger of looking at God's purposes and thinking that it is all about us. With reverence, we must look at all of life and seek the glory of our king. Next, we are given more reasons to fear. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. We are in real danger of the wrath of God if we have no regard for who he is and his purposes. 
our God is severe. He is wrathful and will by no means clear the guilty. He is holy and righteous. Because of our sin, we would have no hope. And if we were to stand before the Lord, we would with Isaiah cry out, woe is me. We would literally call curses down upon ourselves. Before the holy God, we are in despair. We have hope, though. Our God, who is severe towards sinners, is also kind to sinners. What hope does the sinner have when faced with a holy and severe God? The Lord, in his kindness and love for his people, sent his Son into the world to stand in our place and bear our punishment. For those here who have turned to Christ in faith, you have experienced the kindness of God. The kindness of God in Christ has saved us from our sin. If you are here today and you do not know the kindness of God in Christ, please know that God has provided in his son the only way to be saved from his wrath. God is kind to all who turn to him in faith. Next, we are reminded that God's severity and kindness also serves as a gracious encouragement to persevere in the faith. We must, in faith, continue in the kindness of God. When we believe who God says he is, and trust his purposes in salvation, we are guarded through faith to continue till the end. But if we misunderstand, if we treat others pridefully and lose sight of who God is, we are in real danger of inviting the severity of God down on ourselves. Because of this, we, we must check our hearts Salvation by no means is a pass on sin. We ought to be a people who are on guard against any sin that would cause us to misunderstand God and lead us into unbelief. Salvation is no cause for pride, but rather calls for continued faith and reverence. But not only faith and reverence. Salvation calls for continued trust and hope. Finally, lest we are in doubt, lest we doubt God, we are reminded of his power to save. Our text tells us that those who do not persist in unbelief but rather turn to God and believe all that he is and all that he is doing in the world will be secure through his power. You know, this is true for the Jews. You know, it says here, 
that God has the power to graph them back in again. This is true for the Jews. And, and Mike will preach more on this next week. But we must not misunderstand. God will remain faithful to his covenant people. Ethnic Jews who turn to Christ will be grafted back into their own olive tree. You know, this is true for all believe, our unbelievers. God has the power to save them and bring them into his covenant people. Do you sometimes doubt God's power to save the most shameless unbeliever in your life? Sometimes we look at the sin and rebellion of others around us. We think, there's just no way. There's just no way that they would ever turn to Christ. Have hope. God has the power to save any rebellious sinner. You know, we were at one time dead in our trespasses and sins. We were incapable of responding to Christ in faith. But God saved us. If we are in doubt of God's power to save, we don't need to look very far for a prime example of his magnificent power in salvation. And you know, I need to be honest with this myself. All I need to do is think about my own life before Christ. I grew up in a Christian family, maintained that thought that I was a believer for a long time, but I lived in sin and with a false sense of security. And you know, God's grace came to me when I thought I already had it. You couldn't even tell me I wasn't a Christian back then. All my unbelieving friends thought I was a Christian. I was the best Christian that my unbelieving friends knew. <laughs> but God's grace came to me. He overcame my will and made me his own. You know, this is true for all believers. God has the power to keep us for himself. Do you sometimes doubt God's power to save you? That as you go through life and you, you struggle with sin, you just, how could God save me? Because, well, look at my sin. I, I don't even know. I'm just struggling. I'm having a hard time that how, seeing how God could, could ever forgive me. Friends, if this is your struggle, take heart and trust God. Not only does he have the power to save you, but if you have repented of your sin and have turned to Christ in faith, you are already saved. You know, when we've included this, these prayers of confession on a Sunday morning, this isn't just so that we beat ourselves up 
We're not beating ourselves up, making ourselves feel bad. We have real sin that we need to confess of continually, over and over and over again. And if you would also please notice that the assurance of pardon, that's not our words. It's never our words. It's only the scriptures, because that is the word of God. The word of God assures us that if we have repented of sin and turned to Christ in faith, we are saved. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your iniquities from you. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin, but not, not only for our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. If you struggle with assurance, be assured through God's word. God has said it. Trust him. The truth is, God's power to save ought to compel us to greater hope and trust. You know, we sang of this very fact this morning, that hymn we sang, that new one, From the Depths of Woe, it's a Martin Luther hymn. And it ends with a triumphant proclamation of God's power in salvation. The final verse says, Though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd, good and true, is he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. Let us understand, given who God is and his saving purposes, we must be a people who respond appropriately. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord God, we confess that at times we're arrogant, pride, prideful, and Lord, that we are just, we're reliant upon you, upon your grace and your mercy, Lord. We are reliant upon the work that you have done since the beginning of creation. Lord God, we are reliant on your covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Lord, we are all 